Welcome to episode 141 of Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm your host, Jesse Bartholomew. I want to go ahead and give a warning right off the bat. This episode does revolve around a murder, and I will be discussing the details of that murder because they the details are extremely pertinent to how this all played out and why it was such a big deal. So anyway, I'll be talking about the details at the beginning of the episode and again about a quarter of the way through. So I will give another warning when I'm about to start talking about the more graphic elements and you can skip ahead then or if you feel like this might not be the right episode for you, just, you know, I'll see you next week. Um, Also, I want to mention the hosting platform that I use to distribute the podcast is doing away with ambassador ads, which is like the primary way that I make any money off the show. So it's unfortunate, but it's not going to deter me at all. Um, That being said, I don't really like to ask for monthly supporters. And for the few of you that are out there that do support me monthly, I love you guys. I really appreciate it. But I am aware that I don't put out the same amount of content from one month to another. And I want you all to get what you pay for. So instead of being a monthly supporter, you can always make a one-time donation, or you could do that quarterly or just after you hear an episode that you think was especially good. You can send me a few dollars through Venmo. You can look up at KY History Haunts. That's my Venmo name. Um, No spaces, no and, just at KY History Haunts. Um, Or my favorite thing is to get any sort of mail, greeting cards, postcards, whatever. Um, If you're old-fashioned like me and you like to send greeting cards for holidays, send me five bucks and a Valentine's Day card. I would absolutely love that. And if you would like to receive cards from me every now and again, you can email or message me your address on social media and I'll add you to my mailing list because pen pals are fun. Okay, that's all the business I have, so let's get into episode 141. This is the murder of Rhonda Sue Warford, and like I said, it will be gruesome right out of the gate, so just brace yourselves. On Sunday, April 5th, 1992, Two people out looking at property nine miles southwest of Brandenburg, Kentucky, near the Breckenridge County line, thought they saw a mannequin near the edge of a field. They ventured closer and realized it was the body of a woman who had been stabbed 11 times in the torso. Her throat had been slit ear to ear. The body was clothed and it didn't look like she had been sexually assaulted, but she was definitely dead and they called the Meade County Police. A few days earlier, 19-year-old Rhonda Sue Warford left the home where she lived with her parents on East Whitney Avenue in South Louisville. She told her mom, Mary, that she was going down the street, which her mom assumed meant that she was walking to a nearby store, which Rhonda did often. But it was weird, she realized she didn't take her purse or her ID, and then she never came back. So the following day, her parents reported her missing. They put up flyers around town. They called everyone they could think of who might know where Rhonda was, but they got no answers until that Sunday when Louisville investigators got a call from Meade County Police. Brandenburg is about 40 miles southwest of Louisville. It's a small town right on the river, 
and it's come up in the podcast a lot. Uh, it goes down in Brandenburg. So I'm not going to get into details about Brandenburg because I think I have before, but it didn't take long to confirm this body found in a rural Kentucky field belonged to Rhonda Sue Warford. Um, right at the time, police weren't revealing whether there were any suspects in the case. In fact, they weren't revealing much at all. Rhonda was a graduate of Iroquois High School. As I mentioned, she lived with her parents, Mary and James Warford. She also had three sisters, Tammy and Michelle Rogers, uh, Crystal Barnes, and a brother, Jeffrey Warford. They mourned the loss of Rhonda at a funeral home on Taylor Boulevard on April 8th, a few days after Rhonda's body was discovered, and she was laid to rest in Evergreen Cemetery. At first, it seemed like maybe the police didn't have any solid leads. Um, they had Crime Stoppers post in the newspapers looking for information. They shared with the public that she was last seen wearing red pants and a red and black jacket with UNLV on the sleeve. And they were offering $1,000 for information leading to the arrest of the person who committed this violent murder. But it turned out the police thought they knew exactly who murdered Rhonda. By early May, two men had been arrested. Gar Keith Harden Jr. was 22 years old, and he had been dating Rhonda for the last six or seven months. He and his friend, Jeffrey Dwayne Clark, 21 years old, were booked at the Meade County Jail. When asked what they thought the motive was for killing Rhonda, the police said they were not ready to reveal that information. They also weren't commenting on anything else, and so they didn't. we didn't know if there was a murder weapon or any of that. All they would say is they believed Rhonda left her home to meet up with someone that she knew the day she disappeared, and that someone took her to Brandenburg and killed her and then drove back but there was no why and there was no how. A lot of it didn't make sense yet. Hardin and Clark were arraigned on May 6th and the public learned much more about the why and the how in July of 1992 when headlines read, murder committed to profit devil worshipers, prosecutor says. Now, I'm guessing most of you are familiar with the Satanic Panic, so I'm not going to get into explaining it too much today. But if you're curious, oh, there's plenty about it on the internet. There have been waves of this panic over the centuries, but there was a really big wave that started in the 1980s and really amped up in the 90s. So the public was being told on the news by churches that there were all these secret Satan-worshipping cults permeating their social groups, their preschools, everywhere. They performed rituals and sacrifices, and they were incredibly deviant and dangerous. And in July of 1992, the satanic panic made its way to a Kentucky courtroom via Keith Harden and Jeffrey Clark. Here's how the Courier-Journal described the young men on July 5th. Quote, Keith Harden and Jeffrey Clark were best friends. They collected snakes, knives, and guns together, and day after day, they plugged into high-volume heavy metal music laced with demonic references. 
Investigators say their fascination with Satanism led them to read as many books on the occult as they could find. So the prosecutors were going to argue that these two murdered Rhonda Warford to, quote, enhance their status as devil worshipers. And they were going to seek the death penalty, which could only be sought when murder is committed under aggravated circumstances, one of which is for the purpose of receiving anything of monetary value or for other profit. Commonwealth attorney Kenton R. Smith explained the profit in this case was the boy's own psychological gratification, which this argument was off the wall and it would certainly set a precedent. Attorney Smith admitted that he didn't know if his argument would, quote, fit the law. He said, I've got to learn a lot about Satanism before this comes to trial. The defense attorneys described the indictment and explanation for it as, quote, an absolute surprise and utterly ridiculous. Kevin McNally, an attorney in Frankfurt who headed the death penalty section for the State Department of Public Advocacy, said every court in the country basically agreed that the meaning of profit was financial gain, and it was very dangerous territory to start applying psychological profit to that same law. Quote, if you believe a killer derived satisfaction from a murder, you could apply it to every murder case. The trial was set for the following March. Harden and Clark were held without bond. Eventually, they would get out on bond. I'm unclear on exactly when that happened. But more details had come out about what the police thought happened. So they said the two men picked up Rhonda Warford near her house around 12.30 a.m. the morning of April 2nd. They drove her to Brandenburg, stabbed her to death in this ritual sacrifice, and were back in Louisville by 4 a.m. This is when they also revealed more about the coroner's findings, and this is where I'm going to get pretty graphic again, so if you need to skip forward a little bit, do so now. Coroner Bill Adams performed the autopsy, and aside from the multiple stab wounds to the torso and the throat being slit, Rhonda's brainstem was punctured with two deep jabs to the back of her neck. The prosecution would argue that this was done in the same way that known Satanists do this on small animals for sacrificial rituals. And there was more. According to Meade County Sheriff Joe Greer, who was the lead on this case, symbols were found, quote, crudely tattooed into Rhonda's skin an inverted cross on her left breast, a large A in a circle, the anarchy symbol, on her back. She also had defensive wounds on her hands. Uh, some guy from the New Albany Police Department chimed in on all this. He wasn't directly involved in the case, but his name was Mike Helm, and he had taken more than 30 training courses on ritualistic homicide, and he said those tattoos were on the left side of the body because it symbolizes the reverse of Christianity. So people were all riled up about this. Now, investigators searched the boys' houses, of course, and they found books like the Satanic Bible, the Crystal Oracle. They found, quote, a skull and crossbones flag. Uh, they found a Ouija board, and they took some letters, photographs, and clothing. 
And that was all from Harden's home, um, Keith Harden, Rhonda's boyfriend. They actually didn't find any satanic materials at Clark's home. But between the two houses, they found more than two dozen knives and machetes. So now you might be thinking, hey, no satanic materials at Clark's home. Is this guy being drugged through the mud just because he was friends with Harden? Well, uh, Clark was actually awaiting trial for allegedly putting a loaded gun in his girlfriend's mouth and cocking it during an argument about a year earlier. So he was actually facing wanton endangerment charges when he was arrested for Rhonda's murder. The wheels of justice turned slowly. March 1993 came and went. No trial. In fact, so did March 1994. The only thing in the papers regarding Rhonda Sue Warford in 1994 was an article in the In Memoriam section of the Courier-Journal, quote, In loving memory of Rhonda Sue Warford, you've been gone two years today, but in our hearts you will always stay. We miss your beautiful smile and your pretty face. No one can take your empty place. We miss you and love you. You will never be forgotten. Sadly missed by mother, father, sisters, brother, nephew, cousins, and family. So years pass and no trial. Finally, in March of 1995, almost three years after the murder, Gar Keith Harden and Jeffrey Clark would get their day in court. Throughout that time, they maintained their innocence and cooperated with police. The presiding judge, Sam Monarch, rejected the prosecution's request to seek the death penalty, rejecting the psychological gratification argument made by the Commonwealth's attorney, Kenton Smith. Instead, they would be charged with murder and complicity to murder, but no aggravated anything, so they could not base the death penalty. By the way, the trial was said to have been delayed so long because this judge presided over three counties and just had this insane caseload, and they were also struggling to schedule the numerous witnesses that were going to be involved. So Hardin was 25 years old, and Clark was 24 when their trial began. Hardin had admitted that he was interested in Satanism. He found it all very interesting. And, I mean, they found all that stuff in his room, so he was obviously curious, at least. But Clark was adamant that he had nothing to do with any of that. And like I said, they hadn't found anything in his house other than some knives. And the defense team was quick to point out the glaring fact that the prosecution didn't seem to have any physical evidence tying the men to this murder. The jury was made of 16 Kentuckians. They almost went through the entire jury pool during selection and had two more alternates than was usual. The Commonwealth's attorney, Kenton Smith, explained to the jury that for Keith Harden, sacrificing animals just wasn't cutting it anymore. He had gotten bored and decided to move on to humans. And apparently this is something that, that uh, Harden had told an investigator, and we'll get to that later. Witnesses apparently heard Clark talk about how he might like to kill someone just to see if he could get away with it. Kenton Smith, in his opening argument, used a plastic skull to show how the killer stabbed Rhonda in the back of the neck, severing her brainstem, killing her instantly. 
and he would bring in an expert to discuss how apparently that was similar to what Satanists did to animals during rituals. It's important to note here that both defendants were offered plea deals. Both Hardin and Clark rejected these offers. Clark's lawyer asked the media, quote, if you're innocent, why do you need to do 10 years? In their opening argument, the defense explained that they would be presenting multiple witnesses who could place the boys in their homes and at a gas station in Louisville around the times they were alleged to have committed the murder. They would also point out that police failed to investigate anyone else. They had tunnel vision and could only see Harden and Clark for this murder. For example, what about Warford's ex-boyfriend? They would also bring in their own experts to testify about Satanism, specifically that if this had been a Satanic killing, the killer would have taken a body part as a trophy. Unfortunately, most of the trial wasn't really reported in the papers as it happened. I do know a gas station clerk testified that he saw Jeffrey Clark come into a gas station about an hour or two after the time Warford would have left her home, which would be the time that they thought they'd be spending on the road on the way to Meade County. So the timing didn't add up. And the clerk also said he saw that Clark was having a somewhat hostile exchange with a few other younger people in the gas station. So it was memorable. It was definitely him in the gas station. Both men testified in their own defense. They said that they spent the night she disappeared cleaning up Jeffrey Clark's trailer and they stopped for cigarettes at that gas station on the way home. On the evening of March 7th, 1995, Keith Harden and Jeffrey Clark were found guilty. You could hear their parents sobbing in the courtroom as the verdicts were read. Sentencing was set for about a month later, and the jury recommended life sentences for both men. The defense attorneys said they would appeal the convictions on several grounds. One issue was the end of the trial. During Kenton Smith's closing argument, he pulled out the pants Rhonda was wearing when she was killed, and he started graphically describing her injuries. And that's when Rhonda's family and friends started sobbing in the courtroom loudly, and their emotion was overpowering the closing argument. So much so that Judge Monarch actually stopped Kenton Smith's speech and said, quote, I can't let you sit there and cry in front of the jury. So he sent the jury out while he talked to the friends and family, and he told them, quote, they can't make a decision based on feeling sorry for you. Put the Kleenex away and dry your eyes or please get up and go out if you can't control yourself. So they composed themselves and they stayed as the jury was brought back in. But that was a problem. A few weeks after the jury made their decision, on April 21st, 1995, the defense team said they had new evidence and demanded a new trial. Hardin and Clark had not yet been sentenced, and now sentencing would be postponed. Now, there was a jailhouse snitch, okay? A former inmate at the Meade County Jail had testified that Clark had confessed to the murder, and this inmate had written a letter about it. But this letter 
made it sound like the former inmate was asking another witness to lie about this confession with him, basically. And the defense team, Bart Adams and Wallace Rogers, said they didn't know anything about this letter until after the trial was over. But if they had known about it, they could have used it to challenge this inmate's credibility on the stand. And they said this Meade County Sheriff, Sheriff Greer, he knew all about this letter, but he kept it to himself for years because he knew it would hurt his case against Harden and Clark. And this was a total violation of the rules of discovery of evidence. That witness was a big deal since they truly didn't have any physical evidence against the two men. And without it, the defense team argued they could have gotten an acquittal. The prosecutor, Kenton Smith, said he didn't know about this letter. And he argued that it it wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have changed the outcome of the trial regardless. Judge Monarch actually agreed with Kenton Smith, the prosecutor, so the request for a new trial was denied, and in May of 1995, both Hardin and Clark were sentenced to life in prison. But yeah, that the letter, this letter, um, it really sounded like it made the witness look like a liar. It was sent to a man named Kevin Justice and a public defender in Colorado, And both of them swore that they had conversations about this letter with Sheriff Greer as early as 1992. And so we get in the weeds a little bit with this issue because there are a bunch of different interviews with everyone involved trying to figure out did or didn't the sheriff know about this letter? Should it have been included in discovery? But yeah, the judge just decided there wasn't enough proof to show that the sheriff did know about the letter. So after being sentenced, Jeffrey Clark asked the judge for a special investigation into Sheriff Greer and Kenton Smith. His attorney told the press, quote, there is sufficient evidence to indicate Sheriff Greer was aware of this letter and he has an obligation under state and federal law to turn over any exculpatory evidence. I don't think there's an appellate court in this country that will allow this conviction to stand. In this same article about the sentencing and the issue of this letter from 1995, I thought it was interesting the author of the article included this, quote, investigators initially thought it looked like a satanic killing and were especially suspicious of Hardin because he acknowledged practicing Satanism, but trial testimony showed the slang did not match any known rituals. Trial testimony also showed that the prosecution had no physical evidence tying Hardin or Clark to the murder scene. The names Rhonda Warford, Gar Keith Hardin, and Jeffrey Clark disappeared from the papers completely until April of 2013, over 20 years after the murder, the Kentucky Supreme Court ruled that the hair of Keith Harden and Jeffrey Clark should be DNA tested. The decision was based largely on the fact that this case revolved around highly circumstantial evidence. In their statement, the Supreme Court said, quote, We are mystified, if not amazed, that the Commonwealth has such little interest in the possibility that DNA testing might lead to the prosecution and conviction of a guilty person heretofore, uncharged and now at large. 
to me, this is wow. Like, not only are they saying you must do this DNA testing, they're basically come out, coming out and saying you got this wrong and the killer's still out there. At the time of this ruling, Clark's attorney was now Linda Smith, director of the Kentucky Innocence Project. Keith Harden was now 43 years old and Clark was 42. Both were eligible for parole in April of 2014. So obviously to conduct DNA testing, you would have to have something to test it against. This is the very first time in any article about this case, the public learns that there were hairs found on Rhonda at the scene that were not hers. Years earlier, defense attorneys begged for these hairs to be tested because they believed it would reveal the murderer was an entirely different suspect. And this was someone that uh, people kind of knew about, and it was someone law enforcement never even bothered to look at. But Kenton Smith and his buddies at the attorney general's office refused to turn over the evidence. And they argued that, okay, the jury knew about the hair, and they knew there was a possibility those hairs could have belonged to a different suspect, and they convicted anyway, so that was enough for them. The Innocence Project offered to pay for the testing and have it done at their accredited lab. And for the record, Kenton Smith had retired in 2008, so he really didn't have a dog in this fight anymore. Um, We'll talk about his replacement in a little bit. What's even crazier about this is that you could tell just by looking at the hairs that they were gray. They most likely belonged to an older person and, or at least they probably didn't belong to Harden and Clark because they were 21 and 22 at the time and they definitely didn't have gray hair. How on earth was this not a red flag in the trial? So, um, Another interesting thing about this is that during the trial, uh, a quote expert did testify that the hair was a microscopic match to Harden. But in 2015, we knew better. The DNA test confirmed the hair found at the scene belonged to neither Keith Harden nor Jeffrey Clark. And the Innocence Project wrote a 135-page motion to either now have a new trial or go ahead and have their sentences vacated. The Meade, uh, Meade Commonwealth's attorney said he would deny that motion because in his first parole hearing in 2013, Harden admitted to killing Rhonda, quote, because I was a Satanist. The Innocence Project argued Wrongly convicted people end up confessing at their parole hearings all the time because admitting guilt is the only way people are ever, ever granted parole. So he knew, I mean, he knew confessing was his only way out of his life sentence. A 2015 article also provided some more information that was new to me. Um, It said Rhonda, quote, told her mother that day that a strange man who was old and dirty looking had followed and harassed her, shouting that he wanted to marry her and have children with her. Wonder if that guy had gray hair. I also learned from this article that Rhonda's mother is the one who told police the men were practicing Satanism because it turns out Rhonda was, quote, dabbling in it as well. Another new detail that comes out, there was this washcloth 
with blood stains on it that they found when they searched Keith Harden's home. And in court, the prosecutors said that this was animal blood that they had found on this washcloth from a ritual, a sacrifice that he had performed. Well, he argued, no, I cut myself on a glass and wiped it up with a washcloth in my house. And after they tested the DNA, it turned out that was just his blood on a washcloth, just like he'd explained in court. He wasn't in his house sacrificing animals. And as for the, quote, expert testifying that the hair was a match to, to Keith Harden back in the 90s, quote, the FBI in 2013 said testimony that purports to match a known hair to an unknown hair through microscopic comparison has no scientific basis. By the way, by the way, they never did find a murder weapon. They took all of those knives and machetes out of the two boys' houses and they couldn't match any of them to whatever was used to kill Rhonda. And last but not least, we do need to talk about a Louisville detective named Mark Handy. Maybe that name is familiar to you. He's a little infamous. He, quote, had a reputation as a closer and could wrest a confession out of anybody. So remember the prosecution said they had this witness who uh, Keith Harden basically confessed to that he was tired of sacrificing animals and he wanted to see what it would be like to move on to humans. Well, that was Mark Handy who Keith Harden allegedly confessed that to. And Harden swore he never said that to anybody. He would never, it just wasn't true. He denied that conversation ever happened. Handy had since retired from the police department and was under investigation for fabricating evidence, falsifying police reports, and committing perjury in another case of wrongful conviction in Louisville. In fact, Mark Handy pled guilty in 2021 to one count of perjury and one count of evidence tampering. He was sentenced to a year in prison, but he was released after a few weeks. Handy was also one of the detectives on the Ann Gottlieb case, episode 55, and he is one of the detectives who took a call where someone said they saw a little redheaded girl get into a car, and he wrote a statement saying that he sent a patrol car to the area, but in a news clip of an interview with Ann Gottlieb's parents, they admitted that they were not satisfied with the investigation and police response to their missing daughter. Um, so I just thought that connection was worth mentioning. But yeah, this guy, this guy who ended up being convicted of perjury and evidence tampering, he was a significant part of the trial that ended in Harden and Clark's convictions. County Attorney Mike O'Connell, who objected to an attempt to give Handy probation, said, quote, I think it is appalling and shameful that someone who caused so much misery in the lives of innocent people is permitted to sit at home watching television, serving out a sentence for perjury. So yeah, there's that. Now, attorneys from the Innocence Project urged the Meade County Police to search for Rhonda's real killer. You know, we're still sorting stuff out with Harden and Clark, but 
even though now we're all thinking there's, you know, even you all are thinking there's this chance that someone is out there that who, who really did it, go look for them. Uh, they, the Innocence Project felt like there were several other suspects, including a man named James Whitley, who is a felon with a pretty serious rap sheet. And allegedly, this James Whitley guy had confessed to one of Rhonda's friends at some point that he killed her because she threatened to report him for a parole violation. Now, of course, later, Whitley adamantly denied this accusation, and he even told the Courier-Journal, quote, I ain't killed nothing in my life but fish. But he had gone to prison for attempted murder in the past, and he had another charge for assaulting a corrections officer while he was there. Now, while awaiting the outcome of all this, while waiting to see how it all played out, Jeff Clark got a college degree while he was incarcerated, and he told the parole board when he was up for parole, quote, I'm sorry for the victim's family's loss. I'm sure they hate me over it. But when these test results come back, I'm sure they won't hate me no more. And finally, in 2016, the convictions of Gar Keith Harden and Jeffrey Clark were vacated. Circuit Court Judge Bruce Butler ordered a new trial, but the Kentucky Innocence Project said the men should just be released once and for all, no second trial. The sentences were vacated, but they were not just free to go. The two men went back to the Meade County Jail until it was decided whether or not they would be retried. So now let's recap. The DNA revealed that someone was with Rhonda at the time of her murder, whose hair did not match either of the men. The FBI confirmed the hair match an expert witness said belonged to one of the men during the trial was bunk science. One of the investigators, who claimed Hardin said he wanted to sacrifice a human, was under investigation for corruption. In fact, he'd just been involved in a case where a wrongly convicted Louisville man named Edwin Chandler was finally exonerated after nine years in prison and awarded $8.5 million. Finally, the blood on the washcloth they found that they said was animal blood from a sacrifice turned out to be Hardin's own blood from cutting his hand on a glass. Not to mention the witnesses who placed them in Louisville around the time of the murder. There was a hearing in August of 2016 where the judge was expected to make a decision, but he, he couldn't decide. So again, the wheels of justice turned slowly. Kenton Smith's replacement, Commonwealth's attorney David Williams, was not about to let these guys go free without a fight. His office had opposed the new DNA testing in the first place. They opposed bail now, and they said they would definitely be retrying them if that's what it came to. Williams said, quote, they had enough evidence for a jury to find them guilty last time. So based on that, I'd say there's enough evidence that a jury could find them guilty again which is just a ridiculous thing to say based on what they knew by 2016. It would be an entirely different trial, and he knew that. In the middle of August, Hardin and Clark were released on bond, so they still weren't in the clear. They might have to go back to trial, but it was the first time they'd stepped out beyond the confines of a prison in well over two decades. Clark said, quote, "'You always dream of this day, especially when you didn't do nothing.'" And now this day is here, 
I'm joyful that the truth is finally coming out, but I'm upset it took so long. In 2016, Kentucky was one of 20 states with no laws providing compensation for wrongfully incarcerated inmates. Individuals can sue for compensation, but only after all charges are completely dismissed. In 2017, the Commonwealth's Attorney's Office doubled down, charging Hardin and Clark with new crimes, including kidnapping. This time, they could face the death penalty. Kidnapping becomes a capital offense when the victim is not returned alive. The defense team filed a motion in response to have the new charges dismissed, stating that they were pursuing these new charges, quote, out of vindictiveness and in retaliation to exercising their legal right to attack their murder convictions. In June of 2017, the Assistant Attorney General argued in front of the Kentucky Supreme Court that Hardin and Clark should be sent back to prison and without a new trial. In July, Hardin and Clark filed lawsuits against the state for police misconduct leading to their wrongful convictions, and the following month, the Kentucky Supreme Court upheld the lower court's ruling to vacate their sentences. Finally, in January of 2018, the judge dismissed the new charges of kidnapping and perjury. The judge, in his 14-page ruling, specifically noted that it seemed the assistant attorney general who was at that time Perry Ryan, was acting out of vindictiveness and attempting to punish the men for proving their innocence. Quote, vindictive conduct by persons with the awesome powers of prosecutors is unacceptable. And in early February 2018, the Attorney General's office dismissed the murder charges as well. So after spending over 8,000 days in jail each, they were finally free men. After all the charges were finally dismissed once and for all, the Attorney General's office promised they would continue to investigate Rhonda Sue Warford's murder. And that's the real tragedy. I mean, of course, no innocent person should spend a day in jail for a crime they didn't commit. But also, the person who murdered Rhonda is still out there, and they're getting away with it. In 2018, Rhonda's mom said that she still believed Hardin and Clark murdered her daughter. And Kenton Smith insisted the jury got it right. It appears Kenton Smith is still practicing law in Brandenburg. So as for that civil suit, um, it took years, but just last September, Louisville Metro government agreed to pay, drumroll please, $20.5 million to Hardin and Clark. And that's just from Louisville Metro. The Meade County Sheriff's Office and the Kentucky State Police are also named in the lawsuit, and they haven't reached their settlements yet. They're expected to later this year. So, wow. Former Detective Mark Handy, the $30 million cop. <laughs> um, as far as I can tell, there are no new leads in the Rhonda Sue Warford investigation. And now it's been 30 years since her murder. That's a really cold case. I'll be covering more exonerations in the coming months. Let me know what you think about this story. I'm sure there are a lot of different opinions out there. And I realize that some of you probably still think that Hardin and Clark 
committed this murder. And you know what? It's possible. Unfortunately, the state did a really bad job of prosecuting it in the first place. And so here we are. And the fear of, of the satanic panic really just kind of blinded them to the entire situation, I think. That's just my opinion. Let me know what you think. You can email kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com with questions, feedback, or topic suggestions. Connect with me on social media. I appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. Until next time.